Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. My name is Jeff. I'm joined, as usual, by my good friends Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. Richard and Michael debate, deliberate, argue uh, the Mount Rushmore of any given topic. And this week, that topic is the Mount Rushmore of film score soundtrack creators or composers who were in bands and with us to help discuss that, in fact, debate against the unified team of Michael and Richard, is Ryan Pack. Ryan Pack is the host and creator and producer of Soundtrack Your Life podcast. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a delight. And I would love for you to describe to our listener uh, a little bit more of what your podcast is all about. Um, so Soundtrack Your Life is a podcast where I interview a guest every week and we break down a soundtrack that they have a personal connection to, um, you know, where they have some sort of story that connects them to the soundtrack. And, uh, you know, we'll usually kind of do a deep dive into, you know, some of the bands or, um, you know, whatever whatever connects them to the film. We usually do some sort of deep dive and we kind of bounce back and forth between their stories and, and um you know, just kind of facts about the facts about the soundtrack. Cool. So the creators of a film soundtracks and scores are often from the realm of class or of, of musical scoring, of creating uh, music for orchestras and whatnot, and may study that. But we're going to be discussing those folks who uh, find that occupation but have started off in bands is that right guys am i describing it correctly yeah you've got it right okay where are uh soundtrack creators and scorers and composers supposed to come from is it is it from they're all supposed to go to the berkeley school of music or studied classical composition and arrangement is that is that true well i live i live in um north hollywood and across the street from north hollywood high literally i can see it if i look at my window and um uh, John Williams is maybe the most famous person, unless you consider like, um, oh, uh, what's her name? Blossom. Who is the character? Who is the Mayim actress? Bialik? That played? Mayim Bialik. I mean, or Cuba Gooding Jr. But John uh-huh. Williams was um, is our, kind of our most esteemed um, uh, graduate of North Hollywood High, and that's where they come from. They come from, they come from um, right across from Big Time Burger and the um, Taco Bell. That <laughs> okay, we frequently cool. we often go to when um uh, when we're just like I don't know what we're gonna do for dinner go to Taco Bell yes but um, I don't know I mean I I think you're right Jeff though that they come from a a deep well of um musical knowledge and not necessarily from like you know some ska band out of uh <laughs> out right. of Orange County yeah, yeah our, so from our, our, our friend Kaz Boyle who we know from Kickball is now a big time music composer guy and he has a, a an extensive you know composing his, his background comes from from kind of classical music in that that world i believe as well so mm-hmm. yeah okay well this will be a fun discussion and as we go we can maybe uh take a look back at i don't know if it's film history or not but that time in which the demands of the music that goes along with the story that we're seeing on the screen had become to be met not by people who are classically trained to compose for an orchestra, but uh, schmucks who were in a band. So uh, this is a uh, opportunity for Ryan to go up against Michael and Richard, who are unified 
in their struggle to best him and defeat him. But we'll see what happens. So you're our guest, Ryan. You're our visitor. So uh, you will go first. What's your first choice? Um, so I'm just going to shamelessly plug my podcast because we recently did an episode about this specific composer. Um, awesome. So my first pick is Trent Reznor, oh, uh, cool. formerly of Nine Inch Nails, or still currently in Nine Inch Nails. Uh, but now he is famous for um, scoring such films as The Social Network, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary. And um, he just won an Emmy for The Watchmen, the HBO show, right. uh, series. Yeah, oh, he's, cool. also, he's also on our list, Jeff. Oh, he is. All right. The, right. The dual pick. Okay. Ryan, why did you pick Trent? Um, I picked Trent Reznor because, you know, a lot of the music I listened to growing up was from the 90s, so Nine Inch Nails was a big part of that. Um, the Social Network score uh, won, an, won him an Oscar. Uh, well, he and Atticus Ross, that's kind of his um, his partner in crime. Um, you know, he's also done movies such as Gone Girl and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Bird Box, and he's actually doing a new Pixar film, which will be out later this year. That's cool. Uh, do we know that Trent has a a uh, any kind of background in arrangement or composition for uh, the cinematic kind of milieu? Did he ever learn all that stuff in school, or was he a a, 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 a band musician who taught himself to do that other stuff? Um, he was in high school band, I believe. He was also in the theater department. He was the lead in the music man at his high school, which I find kind of hard to believe. <laughs> um, I'm sure that he, you know, grew up taking piano lessons and stuff, but um, he doesn't have a background at, well, he didn't go to college and he doesn't have a background at like some fancy conservatory or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, unlike um, Johnny Williams, who conducted the um uh, Boston Pops or Boston Symphony Orchestra for a long time and has a probably a very confident presence in front of an orchestra. Trent is uh, somebody who is creating these musical uh, soundscapes for the film and may need somebody, uh, like you said, Atticus Finch, to kind of help him translate Atticus that Ross. into... Atticus Ross. Sorry. Atticus yeah, Ross. Atticus Finch is the guy Finch. from... Jim uh, <laughs> <Jen> Scout. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. Um I would say he is, in all his music endeavors, a very uh, a, a creator of very powerful cinematic soundscapes, even in his pop and and uh, even in his, his um, band musical um, output. Yeah, and I think if you look at something like the Social Network score, which was the first score that, that the two of them worked on, and as Ryan said, they won an Academy Award for um, it's very electronica driven. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of kind of ambient noise, and there's a lot. What I what I find really cool about that score is the use of silence. I think the silence in the score is almost as important as the notes that are being played. I think it's in the same way that uh, you talk about an artist using negative space. You know, I think in the same way. I think a lot of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's soundtracks kind of play around with that idea of, you know, how do you create tension by not having notes and not having music? Mm -hmm. And, you know, where, where does that, where does the, the pull and tug kind of come in between those elements? Mm -hmm. Richard, so I, find, Richard. I find that fascinating. 
Richard, I appreciate that you went for the Lisa Simpson listen for the music that they're not playing uh, <laughs> <laughs> consideration for uh, for this sort of music. But uh, I'm kind of, very intelligent. <laughs> I'm kind of the Lisa Simpson of the group, so I think that makes sense. <laughs> okay, a cool first choice. Actually, for both of you, Trent Reznor and his, he and Atticus, what's his last name? Ross. Ross is a score <laughs> for the social network. Um, let's move on to Richard and Michael. I guess it'd be your second choice. What's that? Sure. I'll, uh, our second choice is um, the band Daft Punk uh, scoring. Uh, they have only composed for one film that I know of, uh, which is for Tron Legacy. Oh, yeah. And um, I can't think of a more better one-off pairing of like a you know pop or rock musician with a single film just get in there do everything that you need to do and then get out i mean these are two guys that um these, you know french electronic musicians who have been playing french electronic musicians since the uh, kind of early mid 90s um kind of like in this robo kayfabe you know constantly wearing these you know uh, big robot helmets no matter where they go it's i've seen like one picture of them outside of outside of their gear and it's like some you know kind of crappy promo shot from 1991 or whatever i saw one photo of them where they're playing ping pong (laughs) yeah i mean that's about it but like yeah uh, the pairing of you know i I wrote to richard i said if you can imagine a movie about a movie about computers with music by people that dress like robots who make computer music. I mean, mm-hmm. you've, you've got a, the exact perfect pairing and you know, the music isn't all electronic. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's heavily scored like a, a true kind of cinematic movie would be. Um, but it just fits so perfectly and, uh, so nicely. And it's interesting to think of them coming into a sequel and um, the woman that scored the first Tron movie, her name was um, Wendy Carlos. Uh, she's like the partial inventor of the Moog synthesizer. And she'd only scored a couple other films, um, The Clockwork Orange and The Shining. And to have like those three, you know, The Shining is very um, silent in that same sort of way. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of just like uh, kind of ambient string noise in that. But to come into like this very iconic movie and follow the person who basically kind of helped create your career in synthesizer music, uh, I think was very ambitious. And, um, you know, it's it, I think it's really cool to see people kind of stretch what they do um, from like a pop or rock or electronic standpoint into like a full cinematic you know, endeavor, you know, they're still only writing music in three, four minute bites at a time, but you're still writing for a scene. You're writing for a mood. You're not necessarily writing for something that goes on the radio and is over after a few minutes. This is a fun choice. I love the score. I love Daft Punk. I love the score. And it is fascinating to, uh, you know, considering that the original Tron film is a character who kind of becomes digitized and sucked into this electronic world. It does feel like um, in their evolution to uh, 
disguised their identity. You know, I think uh, the Daft Punk guys immediately just kind of started by wearing goofy masks. And then that I think might have even been a project a product, a byproduct of stage fright. You know, it seems like kind of an affectation now. And we see guys like Dead Mouse and mm. all these other Jamokis who were these big celebrity <laughs> DJs put on a big mask or a helmet like Marshmallow or something like right. that and make a yes, they're making a big show, not unlike David Byrne in his gigantic suit. But I think those uh, Daft Punk guys were just kind of scared to be on stage. <laughs> and they thought, well, maybe if we put these silly masks on, it might kind of help us um, feel more anonymous. And but they did turn into robots, just like um, the characters in the movie Tron. And then the I think it's kind of fascinating, like you said, that they that it almost seems like they were born to to do this. But it they do credit uh, Wendy Carlos, born Walter Carlos, by the way, another person oh. who transformed themselves. Mm. Yeah. Um, and Max Steiner, the uh, huge 30s and 40s um, um, um score creator bernard herman and i love john carpenter in there too so as uh being influential for them in this score so that's uh yeah it almost seems like the thing that they were meant meant to do and and it sure made that uh tron legacy a little bit more hip um at least in my eyes when it came out so that's a that's a fun choice are you familiar with that score ryan yes i am um my friend walked out to one of the the Tron legacy songs um, for his reception. And then he, <laughs> then he cut the wedding cake with a legitimate samurai sword. So I feel like that was very on brand for him. That's great. <laughs> That's super cool. Wow. You know, I, oh. what I do respect about uh, Guy Manuel and um, the other dude, uh, Thomas Bangalter, but uh, it does seem like their, their cred in like dance music and R and B and hip hop, like they know all that stuff that to know that they also kind of know something about soundtracks and scoring is pretty cool too. What were you going to say, Ryan? Um, I was going to, well, I guess to add on to that. Um, so, you know, their last album, Random, Random Access Memories, uh, which won a boatload of Grammys. Um, I believe they kind of made that album to show that they're more than just electronic musicians, that they understand the music mm-hmm. behind their music. Um, I believe like they got uh, the drummer from Michael Jackson's off the wall sessions to play yeah. drums um, Niall Rogers uh, co-wrote a couple songs. He's worked from everyone from Diana Ross, David Bowie, um, Puff Daddy sampled him a bunch in the 90s. Um, so they're they're very, I guess they're very musical and they're very, um, and they like to, they use the last album to kind of show off. Um, you know, they got Giorgio Moroder on there and then mm-hmm. um, they really like the stroke. So they got Julian Casablancas as well. Okay, Ryan, it is your job to tell us your second choice well since richard said that he is the lisa simpson of the group why don't we go with the guy who created the simpsons theme Ah, danny elfman also on our list too it's oh awesome why did you choose danny um danny elfman might be one of my favorite composers in general um Uh You know, he's done everything from Pee-wee's Big Adventure to mm-hmm. Goodwill Hunting. Um, and then obviously he created the Simpsons theme, which I love. Yeah. Um, he, I mean, he's done so many movies that uh, I'm mm-hmm. familiar with. I believe he's credited mm-hmm. now for composing over 100 soundtracks and, um, and a huge nightmare before a Christmas fan as well. Yeah. 
You know, you guys chose Danny Elfman too. I, I was surprised to learn that is it Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo was the original name, and they had kind of it was almost like they told musical theater type stories, which is fascinating to me. That it was his brother's band, and they did these very theatrical presentations that had a narrative from beginning to end. So when we think of these guys as coming from bands, the, it was a band. But in a way, they were telling these long-format narrative stories, and they were scoring them. It had a through line. It had acts and scenes and things like that. So that seems like what the job of a film composer is. So in a way, Danny kind of seems like he came back home to this role that he did earlier. Why did you guys choose him? Uh, I think mostly for just the, the same reasons. I, you know, as an LA kid myself, definitely like Oingo Boingo was just like one of the big through lines through like listening to K-Rock growing up. I don't know how popular they were in the rest of the country or the rest of the world. I mean, I know that they were popular. They, you know, um, they were featured prominently on like a bunch of like um, soundtracks. Talk about soundtrack your life. Uh, Ryan's, I mean, like Fast Times at Richmond High, they were kind of like the, the big capper song at the end. I think that they also had like music on, um, Oh, what was the one about uh, back to oh, school? Back to school. Weird science, obviously. Weird. I mean, obviously, weird science. You know, Danny Elfman has such an interesting relationship with um, the music industry, with his brother, and uh, making kind of that, you know, um, what's it called? Forbidden Zone, that kind of extension of the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo mm -hmm. um, kind of street performance, ensemble, whatever it was, that he's just kind of been this thing it's this, this huge LA thing that's just been for so long yeah. and I just I also think that he is on our list because can you think of another artist outside of like John Williams and Steven Spielberg that is so just connected to a director and filmmaker like him and Tim Burton I mean all mm -hmm. but like two of Tim Burton's films have been done have been scored by Danny Elfman from the silly stuff like Pee Wee's um, Big Adventure to his more dramatic stuff. Um, it's just like there is a there is a visual aspect of Tim Burton and there is an audio aspect of Tim Burton. And the audio aspect is all Danny Elfman. And whether it's like kind of like the kind of those kind of jingling Christmas bell type stuff or mm -hmm. like the like the. The, the very light and airy stuff that gets very dark and so dramatic. I mean, he's just, he is just so supreme at this stuff from like, from superheroes to Pee Wee Herman. And it's just like, he, he captures it all just uh, so well. I do want to know if he can do stuff that isn't, doesn't say, hey, this is Danny Elfman, because like you said, the chimey stuff, maybe with the choir in the background, it all always feels to me like he is doing, uh, he is letting us know at all times that he is the he is Danny Elfman, and he's also, I think, a composer people choose for uh, strong characters, Spider-Man, Batman, mm. Bart Milk. Simpson, <laughs> Milk. 
<laughs> Harvey Milk. Well, Harvey Milk. No, like there, I think there's some scores where he's kind of laying back and he's not creating these uh, themes that are so gothic and dominating and overwhelming. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, 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 thought, I love the good. I love the dude. What do you say, Ryan? I, I thought I think Goodwill Hunting is a good kind of counterpoint mm. to kind of the more dramatic stuff that he's done, um, especially. Uh, the main artist on the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack is Elliot Smith, and you can't really just blast, you know, you can't really be really dramatic with the score and then have an Elliot Smith song play. You have to yeah. kind of um, play yeah. with that. And he even did kind of an orchestral version of uh, Between the Bars, which is an Elliot Smith song, and it's mm-hmm. just strings and it's really, it's really gorgeous. So he can kind of play both sides, uh, even though he may be more famous for kind of the bigger, the bigger sound. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I find that interesting. What does a member of a band do? Sometimes they have to kind of blend in and it kind of for, uh, it's not their job necessarily to always be rocking out and standing out. They have to kind of hear the rest of the band and go with the flow. So it sound like you've given an example of where he can kind of pull back and not be so audacious in the storytelling. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine if you're a Tim Burton and you don't want the score to be lost and you, or you want to try to create something, an environment that has as much character as Johnny Depp with a top hat and dentures. You've got to have a, a Danny Elfman there. So that's a fun choice. And it looks like we are at, actually we've gone even more than our halftime because there have been two similar choices between our two competitors. Uh, there, Danny Elfman and Trent Reznor have been chosen by both Ryan Pack and uh, the uh, man Winfield, Freddie, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Freddie Winfield uh, combo there. So that's super cool. But we've also got um, Michael and Richard's choice of uh, Daft Punk for the Tron Legacy score in there. So uh, we're going to go into our halftime. And this is normally when we espouse the virtues of going back into the archives and download, listening, rating, and reviewing the past episodes. And then we also, during this part, we're going to invite you to go out into social media, uh, to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and speak your mind on our episodes, the ones you've liked, the ones you didn't, and then topics for future episodes, the ones you'd like to hear. It's normally when we do all that, but I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to ask Ryan Pack to do that for his podcast to tell us where uh, people can find the podcast. I happen to know it's on Spotify, Apple Music, and probably everywhere else good podcasts can be found. But where can they connect with you? Um, so you can find you can find me on Instagram. The handle is SoundtrackCast. Um, you can also go to our website, which is www.soundtrackyourlife.net. Uh, we we um, post playlists every week with the episode, so if you want to hear more of the bands that we talk about in the episode, um, my friend creates a playlist both for Apple Music and Spotify. Um, since we can't really play music during the episodes, we kind of create a playlist of, of like a curated playlist of uh, music that we talk about every week. Cool. Okay, so this is a Danny Elfman soundtrack to a big comic book film, and we're in the um, origin part of the film. This is where. No, that's that's. And where did Ryan Pack first come into contract contact with the soundtrack, or where did young Ryan? look up and see that uh, 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 discussing soundtracks to films was going to be important in his life. 
Um, so I grew up with an older sister who got an internship at a record label. So that, um, so she ended up giving me a lot of soundtracks when I was younger. Uh, oftentimes soundtracks to movies I had never seen. Um, and then when I got into college at UC Irvine, I was a film major. So it was kind of a natural marriage between the two. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a fun sound. Um, sorry. And it's fun to talk about uh, soundtracks because you can either talk about, you know, just music or you can also talk about movies. You can go in so many directions. Uh-huh. And uh, there's rarely a person who doesn't, who, who can say, I don't like movies or music. I know a guy. I like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, he's a jerk. Uh, so <laughs> That's a red flag right there. <laughs> I don't know that we have um, gotten into this, but in a way, we're remarking at the oddity of individuals who enter the world of creating soundtracks for films or scores, uh, yet they come not from an academic music background, but a band background. Uh, but... I want to know, are we going to discuss folks like a T-Bone Burnett who worked with the Coen brothers to come up with all the the songs that uh, um, the Big Lebowski is boogieing around to in that film? Or there's some guys who just populate films with cool songs. You know, hey, I got this cool Dylan pull for this song. Are we going to talk about those people for those types of films? I haven't. I don't have any on our list. Um, okay. I would like to be that guy, though. I feel like that I would be uniquely qualified to do that. Not that I have yeah, any qualifications would. for it, but I just feel like I'd be really good at it. <laughs> so if anybody's listening that can hire me to do just suggest songs for scores. To curate the a cool... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, soundtrack curator. Yeah, okay, cool. I can do that. You can do that. You totally could do that. So I, I think, think one of mine is adjacent to a soundtrack supervisor that I'll probably well, talk about. Why don't you bust that one out right now while we go into our second half, Ryan Pack? All right, so my third, my the third composer for me on Mount Rushmore is Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. Oh, love it! Cool. Also on our list, we are. Are you serious? We're very simpatico today. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Starting with Ryan, why did you choose uh, Mark? Uh, He's done a bunch of movies that I love. He's also done some stuff for TV, so he is the composer of the Rugrats theme. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, also co-wrote the uh, Pee-Wee's Playhouse theme. That's right. Sung by by Cindy Lauper, which I didn't realize until I was doing the research on it. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) That's wonderful. Under an assumed name. Are you a fan of his scores, or are you just a fan of the idea of this this guy from uh, a bonehead, uh, you know, pseudo punk new wave band out of Ohio doing this kind of thing? What's what, what's attractive about Mark Mothersbaugh? Um, he did the first four Wes Anderson films, and I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan. Oh yeah, um, I so love that kind of pseudo baroque stuff that he does for. Tenon Moms and Rushmore. It almost feels like if uh, Mozart was sitting down to write a minuet for these dysfunctional <laughs> characters. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, I yeah, love and... the... oh, Go ahead, Ryan. Go ahead. Um, yeah, he's great with... Um, yeah, you, you know, I feel like every Wes Anderson movie is kind of like a play or it's a... I think even he kind of plays on like Tenon Bombs has a narrator like it's a book. Mm-hmm. And then Rushmore, you know, since Max is 
kind of this um, prodigy playwright. You know, you can kind of read Rushmore as a play. So he's really good at kind of playing into that. Um, I recently did an episode um, for The Life Aquatic, actually. So that was the last of the four Wes Anderson films that Mark Mothersbaugh um, scored. And that one kind of has those Baroque elements, but then he has a song on there called Ping Island, which is kind of the song that's playing in Bill Murray's head. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like this cheap Casio, like electronic song um, that they turn in like to this big obnoxious orchestra thing during a big action scene later in the film. Um, so I really, I feel like there's like his humor in um, the music while you may not hear like Devo in his scores. Like he he's done mostly comedies and I think it's because like Devo always had that that biting humor in their music. Mm-hmm. And I think that even when he went and did a big, big budget uh, Hollywood blockbuster, I mean, it was Thor Ragnarok. So that yeah. was even a movie where I think... Um, the humorous aspects of his of his of his soundtracking um, were able to come to the forefront and obviously he had to i think he had to maybe flex some muscles that maybe previously he hadn't in terms of scoring these big action scenes and you need to do that credibly but at the same time i think if you listen to the soundtrack and you watch the movie there's a lot of kind of humorous notes Mm -hmm. because it is as much a comedy as it is an action film and oh for sure yeah yeah, and you know, you mentioned you know I think we're we're all, all all of us here are big Wes Anderson fans, and I love I love the Tenenbaum score particularly because it's basically telling these stories of these very different siblings, and so his score kind of has to under kind of underscore the different personalities of all these characters, and I think it does a really great job of that, and I think it, that the score really accents these curated pieces of the you know from a, from Wes Anderson's perspective what he's able to bring in in terms of the the rock and pop songs that he's using as part of the, the soundtrack I think you know that creates an, I think it creates additional pressure on the film composer to be able to kind of match that and be able to work with those pieces I mean you've got other audio elements that you're that you're basically competing with I think he does a great job with it. Yeah. I, you know, I see these guys as outsiders. Uh, they uh, are people who, well, some of them are very established now. You know, Danny Elfman is very established, and so is M- Mark Mothersbaugh. But they were originally people that were brought in by new filmmakers who came out of the indie world who wanted to do something different, and they wanted a different sound. And Mothersbaugh... I love how much he has kind of relished in that outsider identity and he, hearing about some of his earlier, like even like commercial work where uh, for a jingle for Pepsi, he would have a backwards uh, vocal saying sugar is bad for you and gives you diabetes in, in the commercial <laughs> and play it for the ad agency. And they would go like this, like, dude, you're so rad. We're so glad we have this, uh, kind of terrorist who has come into the fold of the industry to uh to kind of shake things up a little bit so yeah i think it's it's fun when i think of like you also ryan uh you guys have both all brought up these directors of these long 
relationships with the uh, these musicians, well, those composers have a long relationship with the director, Elfman and um, Burton and uh, Mothersbaugh and Anderson. And I, I, I imagine after their second film, whenever they're going like this or writing the script, they're imagining what the composer is going to do. Uh, yeah. Especially, yeah. Yeah. Especially for, I think those composers who are very attuned to music anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like mother's Ball, I would just rewatched Rushmore and he's so great at moving characters from one place to another. Uh, the frenetic mm-hmm. pace of Mount Rushmore, uh, Max can't graduate school because he can't sit still long enough to do homework. He's got to be in one club or another or cribbing, you know, a, a, a feature film into a, a supposed hit play. And uh, I love the movement that Mother's Bra creates for this kid who is just kind of running from responsibility <laughs> throughout the whole thing. So, so fun. So really, there's just one choice. Left, am I right? That uh, yeah, uh, it's just Ryan's last pick. We're okay. we're done. We're out All of right. here. Right. Okay. Ghost. Well, guys, you, we're a ghost. Uh, we're a ghost. So just, yeah, just let us know that we won, and Ryan will go through the motions and blah 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 <laughs> as we usually have it. So, Ryan, what's your last choice? Um. Well, can I can I add one last thing about Mother's Ball? Sure. Um, of course. Since you all, um. So you know. So. Unlike Elfman, who kind of just scores the whole thing, you know, um, Mother's Baugh has been working with Wes Anderson, and he has to kind of work around these classic rock songs that are in every film. Oh, yeah. Whether, yeah. It's, mm. whether it's David Bowie songs, whether, you know, I think Rolling Stones are in both Rushmore and Tenenbaums. So he has to kind of work around the edges. And the guy who picks these classic rock songs with Wes Anderson, his name is Randall Poser. There's a poster, Randall Poster. Randall I Poster. Ra- I hope it's Randall Poser, because that actually sounds <laughs> I like uh, that a little more. I believe it's Randall Poster. So there's kind of there so through those films, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, and The Life Aquatic, there's this synergy between the three of them, not just between the director. It's between the director, the soundtrack supervisor, and the film composer in mm-hmm. in um in that scenario. And he does a great job. Um, I think Randall um, threw him kind of a cool nod in Life Aquatic. It's the last film that he did with the two of them. There's actually a Devo song on the soundtrack. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they use Gut Feeling, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I, do, is Randall Poster the one responsible for putting Fortunate Son in every Vietnam film ever? <laughs> no, I think Randall likes to have a little bit more nuance than that. Okay. <laughs> so he also is the go-to soundtrack supervisor for Todd Phillips, who's not exactly known for music but mm-hmm. apparently yeah. todd phillips really likes working with him i, I love if he works for scorsese and he's like saying how about uh i don't know maybe give me shelter or maybe something from yeah. uh, the shirelles right here what do you think <laughs> that's yeah, a okay. great idea. i really love it yeah that's I a great that idea it's interesting. Okay. That's that's actually. Sorry, before we move on, it's an interesting thing to think of like these um, rock star musicians who've gone on to be composers that are suddenly having to compete in a sense within their movie with um like pop music you know like uh, like as as ryan said um so much of like rushmore or royal tenenbaums is built on like this kind of dual soundtrackness there is a 
there's a, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the, the Ramones hit and then you're back to like, you know, uh, tinkling on a piano. And it's like, it's, it's very frenetic. It's very, you have to really be able to understand like these two aspects of filmmaking and to make it feel kind of all connected. I remember having the, the, the Royal Tenenbaum soundtrack and it does, it goes from having, you know, um, punk songs and then you're into a nice little mother mother's bar tune and then it goes into another rock song and then you're back and so when you're listening to like an actual soundtrack of an album it's not all like you know the first batman film it's not all like you buy one album it's danny elfman and then you buy another album and it's like bat dance which is just weird it's when you're sometimes you're listening to like a soundtrack to a film and it's like this mix of two different things. And, um, I think he, and, um, uh, especially with like a Rushmore or Tannenbaum's really able to blend those two things. And I, I, I wonder if there's just some sort of aspect or some, because you've been in that industry or maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm reaching a little bit. I think there's something special that happens when the two things blend together. So, so well, was Randall Poster your last choice, Brian? No, I just wanted to bring up Randall Posters. Oh, cool. With, with Mother's Baugh. Um, my last choice is actually Johnny Greenwood. Who's that? Uh, uh, he's the guitarist from Radiohead, and um, he is, uh, and he's always been paired with Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, uh, wow, cool. So what done, do you like about uh, Johnny Greenwood? Um, so I'm a big Radiohead fan, um, and then uh, the first Paul Thomas Anderson film he did was There Will Be Blood, and I just remember like these chugging orchestras that create like this incredible tension throughout the whole film. Like it almost feels like you're listening to a horror score in a movie yeah. that is, I mean, it's kind of a thriller, I guess, in a way. Like, it is. Or, it is kind of a horror film in some ways. I mean, if you get yeah. down to the the where the, the, the monster is human yeah. greed. Yeah, yeah <laughs> literally. I does it. Uh, you think that's something that uh, a guy like Trent Reznor seems like also kind of specializes in creating these soundscapes that aren't necessarily melody uh, driven, but they they do create an emotion. Is that what Johnny Greenwood does? Well, every Paul Thomas Anderson movie has been pretty different, so he has to kind of cater to the subject matter. But I remember There Will Be Blood especially just feeling this huge, just churning tension in my stomach, and it's because mm -hmm. of of the score of the film. Um, you know, his last, the last pairing, or the last film that they did together, uh, Phantom Thread, it's a, it's a really beautiful classical score. He's a little bit different than Reznor because he is fine with just using like the orchestral score. You know, Reznor is kind of more in his wheelhouse where he's going to use his synthesizers and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of piano because that's kind of his main instrument. Um, though he kind of plays everything in Nine Inch Nails except, except mm -hmm. he'll bring in outside drummers. Um, but, you know, Greenwood, um, you know, he, he's, he's okay with using kind of the more orchestral score, but still creating sounds that maybe you wouldn't expect kind of like his guitar playing in Radiohead. Yeah. 
So I think it's been a super fun conversation. Is there any parting comments, gentlemen? Uh, Richard and Michael, anything you want to try to do to get an edge up over uh, Ryan Pack before we get to the scoring? Well, we already stole so many of his choice. We already stole okay. so many of his choices. I don't know what else. <laughs> what else I could you know, possibly do? You know, what I think is kind of interesting. Is I almost feel like um, the creation of a classically influenced score is something that rock welcomed into its uh, arms in the kind of with guys like uh, Brian Wilson and uh, Lennon McCartney, of course, George Martin started to kind of welcome this orchestra. And of course, like the stones a little bit later. And then about that same time, films were starting to have more pop music in it. I think in the fifties with like, um, blackboard jungle and things like that um but obviously even earlier we think of pop music i think of like rock um um but you know people in bands obviously like um you couldn't have like a, a fred astaire film or an al jolson film without having some kind of band music in that too so there's always been band music in films but it's interesting for me the kind of cross-pollinization between the two and even a guy like john barry john barry was a very successful um jazz dude for a long time before getting into the cinema composition. I also remember listening to Paul McCartney talk about after the Beatles wanting to do movie music because uh, every pop star wanted to have the song in a Bond film. So I, it's uh, fascinating to me how much they've always had a, an eye for each other's work. So We should mention, yeah. with, John, we should mention with Johnny Greenway, by the way, his most famous, or maybe his, his biggest... Um, contribution to the world of film film scores and film music would be one of the weird sisters in the harry potter movies he was a weird sister the, yeah there's a, there is a the most famous uh uh wizard band in the world is called the weird sisters and oh. they play they play I, I believe it's the uh yule ball in one of the harry potter i think it's goblet of fire and oh that's like, cool and it's 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 like this all star cast. I, I know uh, uh, Jarvis Cocker. Jar Jarvis Cocker from Pulp is the lead singer, and it's a sort of like this all star, like mm -hmm. it's almost Britpop sort of group that came together to do these like goofy songs for this Harry Potter movie. Yeah, if only if only I didn't have both songs called "Do the Hippogriff" and I forget the name of the other one on my um. My iPod, my <laughs> iPhone. I know exactly. I know these exactly. Yeah. Okay, dude. So this has been a very fun topic. Uh, before I uh, designate the four choices that'll be on the Mount Rushmore, Ryan, I want you to let folks know what the next episode is. It's going to be coming out. Let us know what to expect for Soundtrack Your Life podcast. Uh, the next episode we are doing is... Um, the soundtrack to the 1984 film Purple Rain, which I'm sure nice. everyone oh, wow. knows. Nice. Wow. That's pretty awesome. And I interview uh, someone who actually saw it in the theater. Oh, well, you're talking to one of those guys right now, bro. <laughs> uh, that's cool. That's cool. Okay. Okay, cool. Uh, so he mentioned a few past episodes. I'm going to look through and look at some previous episodes. Airheads with Edgar Rodriguez. He's a frequent guest. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Xanadu. Xanadu oh, with Tracy was, Lane. That was a fun one. Why was it fun, dude? 
Um, because Xanadu is considered the worst film of all time. It's a horrible film, yeah. It's a batshit crazy movie, but I... I, I <laughs> yeah, it's more but, ridiculous than bad. But uh, yeah. I do think the soundtrack is actually under... I mean, I don't know if it's underrated, but I mean, I think it's... it's Jeff Lynn. It's I Jeff Lynn's CLO. I mean, you can't really yeah. go wrong with it. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, Dogs in Space. What's that you and Edgar talk about? It's a 1987 indie Australian film that stars Michael Hutchins from In Excess. Wow, cool. Wow. Okay. It's, uh, uh, directed by an, uh, like the big In Excess music video director, Richard Lowenstein. Oh, cool. All right, Ryan. Uh, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show, and I appreciate our audience checking out Soundtrack Your Life podcast. So many good episodes. And uh, now is the time we get to uh, applaud you both for all your great taste, uh, choosing what is kind of the trinity here, at least two of them, Danny Elfman, Mark Mothersbaugh. So those two guys are going to go up on the uh, Mount Rushmore. And what the heck? How about this uh, new kid, Trent Reznor? He did win an Oscar along with Atticus Jones. Um, (laughs) And... uh, and why don't we go ahead and add Johnny Greenwood to that? So uh, you uh, win by one, um, Rand, uh, Ryan. I appreciate you, you being on the podcast, and congratulations. Um, with with that, you get the uh, huge trophy that we present. Yes, <laughs> to, to the, wreath, the, the the giant wreath that we stole from Santa yeah. Anita Park, the horse racing yeah. track. <laughs> this Laurel and Hardy handshake. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, one more time, uh, remind us of the social handles. It's Graham where? Um, soundtrack oh. cast. Okay, cool. And on that, and you also have somebody could probably kind of follow you out on Apple Music and on Spotify. Is that right? Yes, please subscribe. We're on Apple Music, Spotify, and pretty much every major po- uh, podcasting platform. And you don't play any music on your podcast because that's illegal. Is that right? I think it's kind of like gray area. Oh, we live in that gray area, man. <laughs> we ride it. We're riding the we gray area. Like a, I think like as long surfer. as you're talking over it, it's okay. I, I don't remember the legalese. I was oh, just that, like, I'm just going to, we'll just yeah. do something separate for that. We'll tell it to the judge in our indictment. Um, okay. Uh, this has been the Mount Rushmore podcast, particularly the, the Mount Rushmore of film composers who were in bands. And I, as always, am Jeff. I'm Richard. 